like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And today I will be beginning a, a short series on one of my favorite Philip Dick novels, published in 1966, uh, entitled Now Wait for Last Year. I don't know if this is a popular one. I read it pretty early on when I was first going through Dick's works when I when I first saw him, met him met him in graduate school way back in the the early 2000s almost almost 20 years ago and I remember reading this book pretty early on and, and liking it and I you know sometimes people who I talk to about Philip K. Dick you know maybe they never read this book or they've heard of it but they didn't come across it a few didn't even really know of this novel so I don't know why it hasn't had a broader popularity it's it's got a lot of interesting themes that that I like and, and kind of fit my approach to, to understanding and appreciating Philip K. Dick. But it also has a lot of other themes that I think the people who come, come to Philip Dick for, like the, the spiritual questions, the questions of empathy or what is human, what is reality, that's here too. So it has a lot to offer different people, both the, kind of the more the social political critique and the, and the, and the kind of the mystical stuff. So uh, it's, it's really a, one of these novels of the mid-60s where he's transitioning to a more mystical approach that, you know, it's really clear in the 70s and 80s that he's, he's in that, that frame of mind. This one is still in a transitional stage. It's, of course, one of the novels that Dick wrote in a, in a frenzy, writing like 10 novels in a, in a year or two years. And so it's part of that group along with The Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge and uh, The Unteleported Man. Uh, Clans of the Elfane Moon, Dr. Bloodman, and all those were written around the same period of time in the, in the early mid-60s. So you see a lot of things borrowed from what he was thinking about the time, like antiphoric um, organs, uh, the drug culture, the influence of the drug culture, and drugs being connected to alternate realities. Time manipulation is something you see. Time travel is something you see a lot in this time. He writes a whole book called Counterclock World about reverse time. We see uh, a little bit on the frontier. It's less of a frontier novel than like the Three Stigmata Palmer Eldridge, but it does deal with geopolitics, um, particularly uh, what happens with a country when they get thrust into a, into a war by a more powerful ally and they become a satellite, right? So in a way, what's going on here is you have this anti-colonial narrative going throughout the novel, Now Wait for Last Year, in the sense that you know, Earth, or the United States at the time Dick was writing, it was a global hegemon, right? And forced its allies into wars and conflicts uh, to basically force people to fight for them, suppressing their democracy there while justifying wars and, and other kinds of atrocities abroad under the rubric of democracy. Well, Dick here just puts the Earth in the position of, of American allies during the Cold War, being, you know, Earth is stuck in this massive war that'll probably end in defeat, and they're 
They're basically being dominated by a more powerful ally, and there's not much they can do about it. So there's that, and then there's this very interesting narrative about political power and the use of it. And we have one of the most fascinating examples of of political power in G Gino Molinari, the mole, as he's called, who is the Secretary General of the UN. And he's a buffoon. He's brilliant. He's vulgar. He's hedonistic. He's a bit gross. He's mentally ill. He might have uh, massive empath empath empathetic abilities. He might be an empath. He's also kind of a good politician. He knows what he's doing and he's using his own weaknesses and his own faults to manipulate uh, Earth's position and help Earth survive in this war. And so it's a really fascinating way of, of showing how in apparent incompetence and vulgarity can be effective. Now, of course, anyone reading this now will perhaps think of Berlusconi, maybe, or Berlusconi, because both are Italian. Uh, Molinari is Italian, too. I don't know if Donald Trump fits into this kind of buffoonishness, because I don't know if there's effectiveness behind the, the pale. I think the Molinari is, is much, presented as much more brilliant than than Donald Trump or, or any other contemporary politician. But it's that kind of outward um, buffoonery of, of political leadership. And then the fragility of, of strength. Because on the other hand, you have the starmen, that the, Amer or the, the, the world's allies, fighting this cosmic war, dragging the, the Earth along in, into it. The Earth allies with them because they sort of look like humans, but in fact, they're quite odious. They're a police state, and they're willing to do whatever they can to win and to dominate Earth at any costs. And they are much more fragile, right? Even though they present an image of winning the war and being strong, they're actually quite weak behind the scenes. So there's a lot of interesting political stuff here. And then on top of it all, it's just another Philip K. Dick family drama. Of a, of a broken family, of a, of a family in, in crisis, a marriage in crisis. We see very typical motifs of like the, the exploited husband, the, the husband who feels put up, put, you know, cuckolded, the, the husband who feels he's just there to be a paycheck for, for the wife, the husband who's, who really can't stand his being with his wife anymore, the wife that's very beautiful, but also you know, has personality disorders. In this case, I think our main character's wife has something very close to a borderline personality disorder. And she's also addicted to drugs and she's an adulteress and all these other things on top of it, but very beautiful and, and something, a woman she, he can't get out of his head. But yet the marriage is, is falling apart. So a lot of interesting themes. And it's really, really rich thematically. One of one of the richer ones from, from the 1960s. So you can really talk about this pretty much in any way you want to approach Philip K. Dick, you know, there's something interesting in Now Wait for Last Year. So it's it's a good book to to get at. It's also, I'll say, a good novel in the sense that it's not so fragmentary. He's able to explore all these themes without the the jarring kind of broken up nature of some of his stories where he'll have like side plot lines that really don't go anywhere, but just because it's an interesting story he wants to tell and he just kind of grafts it onto the story. You don't have that as much in this novel. It's actually, everything seems to be connected to the main plot line and it all comes together very in a very satisfactory way. Um, like many of Philip K. Dick novels, we, we kind of end at a place of political instability where a political order gets disrupted and the future is uncertain, it's a bit unwritten, but we do have a lot of a cathartic 
moment in terms of the, the main plot line, which is relationship between these two, these, these two married people and the struggles that their relationship goes on. In fact, this particular relationship, if it could have been constructed into a mainstream novel, probably could have been a pretty good novel. Just um, two people, they work in the same company. One makes, the wife makes more, but she's on drugs. She has, she's facing addictions. And then the husband has to deal with that, right? Of course, that story has been told before. And, you know, and that's kind of the main thread throughout this and all this other stuff going on, cosmic politics and the machinations of the UN general secretary and, uh, <clears throat> you know, war between different alien species and all that stuff is, is in the sidelines of, of this main current story of with just a, a marriage under great strain. And then what does a man do when, you know, when he's given a choice of abandoning this problematic relationship or sticking with it? So that's that's my brief introduction to to now wait for last year. Um, one of one of my favorites. Um, so. Okay, so what happens in this this novel? Well, in, in chapter one, we meet our main character, who's Dr. Sweetscent, Dr. Eric Sweetscent, and he's a, he's a medical doctor. His job is to, he's basically an art of forge organ surgeon. So he takes these artificial organs and the process by which these are made is described late, later on. In fact, we have a post-scarcity economy essentially because of the importation of a, of a foreign amoeba. I'll get into that, but it can, it can make fur coats, but it will make organs. So fake organs can be made, and then his, he just implants them into people. So his job is to keep the old bosses alive, right? This is a theme we saw a lot in the Kraken space. It's, it's a bit of, I think this, the, the theme is almost done better in this novel because we have several characters we kind of get attached to and, and meet closely that are members of that, that geranotocracy, right? Virgil Ackerman is one. The mole is a special case because he's not really kept alive with Artaforge. He's, he's got a different thing going on. But this idea of someone who's like existing beyond their capacity to really function in a, in a normal world, kept alive by advanced medical technologies and therefore become a kind of a permanent aristocracy. And we actually get a scene where this man who's been around for over a hundred years running this company, surrounded by his family, none of whom will ever see, you know, their their business, never see the business fall into their hands. They're basically locked out for eternity because Eric Sweetscent can keep him alive through his through his technology. So we meet Eric Sweetscent and he is moving, he's just going to his office, which is the Tijuana Fur and Dye Corporation. Now this company is, you know, at first was a just a fur and dye company, but it's expanded to become a, a producer of of a lot of different things because they have this organ this this thing from I think it's Mars or Proxima or some other place. No, Proxima are where the the, the people that are war with are from. I think it's from Mars or Ganymede or somewhere. They gets this kind of amoeba that will mimic other things, and that's kind of useful, right? You can get it to mimic a fur coat, for instance. Unfortunately, after a while, it'll get bored of being a fur coat and it'll become an amoeba again. And, and you know, it's kind of hilarious. Well, what happened to a woman wearing this fur coat that she thinks an amoeba, but then we'll turn it back to, or she thinks it's a fur coat, but it'll become an amoeba at some point during, preferably during a, uh, an expensive date. 
So what they do is they find a process by which they can kind of kill these amoebas and freeze them in, in one state. So they'll be a fur coat forever. And this basically allows a post-scarcity kind of situation where anything people would need can be replicated at the molecular and, and cellular level, I guess the cellular level, by these unicell organisms. So of course it's a massive use of organic life for, for human needs. And there is an animal rights theme going on here in several, several levels, right? There's even a discussion, is it right to do this to these unicell creatures? There's later on conversations about animal rights and even the whole relationship between these aliens and the humans is sometimes seen as a almost these aliens are using humans the way we use animals. And the fact that Dick writes this novel not long before he writes Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which very much is about animal rights, I think is, is relevant. I don't know what his attitude was towards vegetarianism or, or animal rights in general, but he's showing signs of being more concerned about these things in, the, in these novels. Okay, so that's the company he works for. He doesn't work really on the factory floor of this. He works basically as the personal doctor for Virgil, Virgil Ackerman, the boss, this old man who's been kept alive with organs. He also maintains the health of, of the employees. So he's kind of the doctor on call. Now he gets intercepted by a robot, uh, a robot essentially that tells him that you have to pay this bill. Now there's a law out there that you can't have credit out for more than two months or or something that's something passed by Gino Molinari, the head of the UN, having something to do with the war effort. I'm not sure the economics of it, but you can't keep debt out. Basically, long-term credit is abolished, so he has to pay this bill. It's like 70 bucks, or he'll could be executed at the spot by the by the robot, and he pays it. And now, the where did the bill come from? Of course, the bill comes from a, something that his wife bought. His wife bought a what was it? A a Lucky Strike package with an yeah, so from 1940 so she's an she's an antique collector that's his wife's job and so she also works for Tijuana fur and dye company but she works as the antique collector for the boss so they both sort of work by the boss they're kind of in the same office and this creates a lot of the tensions in the relationship and the, we're, we're, we're forced to ask this question should married couples work together or not and Dick seems to think not well, the robot expresses the opinion that, that his wife, Kathy, Kathy Sweetscent, is building what's called a Pitts 39. These are baby lands. Baby lands, we're going to see one, that's a significant one later on. But this is a really interesting idea that they cast. Essentially, baby lands are museums of, of a previous time and place. Often, they're what things that people remember, or maybe that they're fond of as a kind of a cultural moment. But what you do is you actually construct an area. You have to be rich to really do this, but you construct an area. It could be a room. It could be a house. It could be a whole city block. How much you have depends on you. Uh, Virgil Ackerman has a huge one. I think it's Washington 35, 1935, and it's a massive region. Basically, it's private domain. Now, Pitts 39 would be Pittsburgh in 1939. And then you, of course, fill it in with artifacts and antiques and that, that's why so that's what Kathy does her job is to collect antiques so people can build these what are called baby lands baby land meaning the land you remember from when you were a baby which is really fascinating of course we have we live in an era now of nostalgia you know there's a lot of people around my age that have this this foolish nostalgia for the 80s for some reason the 80s culture 80s video games 80s music or whatever you know of course the culture of the 1980s was actually quite 
horrible in a lot of ways. I mean, some of the most popular TV shows of the 80s were things like Dallas and Dynasty. And, you know, of course, that's the rise of Donald Trump was in that era, too. And it was just aggrandizing wealth and power over actually common human relations, something that would have really horrified Fight Dick. But there's this, this nostalgia, and I think here it's taken to extremes. Now, part of it is the world is so horrible because there's a war and there's a war economy and martial law. People can be executed for all kinds of reasons. That in that context, you know, people who have means can, can retreat into the past. But then only people with means, with money, can do that retreating. And so it's not a fairly distributed kind of nostalgia. Say what you want about the internet, at least it opens the door for nostalgia to be broadly shared, not just the, the realm of one, one person. Consumerism is a big theme in this novel, especially with the baby lands, and especially with the relationship between Kathy and Eric. And Eric thinks something when he gets this bill. He says, or he thinks, 15 years ago, I would have said, did say that the combined incomes of Kathy and me would be enough, and certainly ought to be enough to maintain two semi-reasonable adults in any level of opulence, even taking into account the wartime inflation. However, it not worked out that way, and he felt a deep and abiding intuition that it just never quite would. So that's the central problem with this relationship, one of them anyways, and that is she's spending the family into the poorhouse, at least in Eric's point of view. So he goes to his work and he runs, he talks to Kathy about this encounter he had with the Robant and she explains that she's not building a baby land and she's actually, by getting this as a gift for Virgil Ackerman. And this is something Eric's going to actually ask about later on and, and get confirmation of. So Kathy's telling the truth here. She's not building a, a Pitts 39, uh, a baby land. But Eric doesn't really believe her and doesn't trust her. And, and it's a very hostile conversation. She, he says at one point, no, it's actually Jonas Ackerman, who's a scion of Virgil Ackerman, says at one point, marriage is legalized hate. Right? And this is certainly something Eric seems to be thinking at this time. Just this, it's a, it's a formal relationship based almost on kind of an institutionalized hate, hatred towards, towards one another. So after he talks with Kathy, he has a long conversation with Jonas Ackerman. And the conversation revolves around loyalty and devotion to career and these kinds of questions. Jonas actually says at one point that Eric's not a very good surgeon. And the reason he's not a good surgeon is because he lets his personal life get in his way of his duty. And his duty is not just to his employer, but his duty is because his employer is a major industrialist whose labors and the company helps, you know, the war effort. You know, he's actually serving the war effort. And by letting his relationship with Kathy get in the way of his service, he's, he's not doing a very good job. He says at one point, you poor, suspicious, stupid creek. That's all you can manage to brood about. Listen, doctor, if you can't get your mind and your job, you're finished. There's 20 anti-forge surgeons with applications in our personnel file just waiting to go to work for a man like Virgil, a man of his importance in the economy and war effort. You're really just plain not at all that good. Personally, if my heart gave out, which it no doubt will do one of these days, I wouldn't particularly care to go with you. You're too tangled in your own personal affairs. You live for yourself, not the planetary cause. My God, don't you remember? We're fighting a life and death death war and we're losing. We're being pulverized every goddamn day. And then Eric ponders about Molinari, the man who has the weight of this war effort on his shoulders. He's the man who got the world into this alliance with uh, the the star men, the people of the Lily Star, another planet, dragged them into this endless war with 
uh, a non-humanoid race. And since then, he's he's had this burden of maintaining the war effort, of of signing death warrants for people who are not serving the state properly, sending millions of people, young people, to their deaths. So this is all on the sh shoulders of of Gino Molinari, the indispensable leader of of the Earth. Now the rest of Chapter One is a meeting with with Bruce Himmel. Bruce Himmel just is a is a, like a tech who works at. T1 and Fur and Dye Company, and this conversation does a couple things. One is it introduces kind of the animal rights argument. A second thing it does is it, it gives us the description of how this company makes its money, what it actually does, and what's this process by which these, these unicellular amoebas, I guess they're amoebas, how they can be frozen into one form and then used for whatever, right? If you want pencils, books, you know, leather, clothing, fur, whatever. You can make it from these amoebas, right? So it becomes a, essentially a, a type of 3D printer. Um, so that's, we get the description of how that happens and how this company went from being a small marginal corporation into one of the largest in, in the world. And most importantly is during the war effort, during the war, that this company essentially has been transformed from making furs, Urzak furs, fake furs, into making war war material right so i guess these amoebas can make bombs or uniforms or whatever whatever might be needed we get an image here of the factory floor floor that himmel's overseen and it's all automated quote within the room a storeroom evidently small carts rolled on about silver dollar sized wheels 20 or more of them astutely avoiding each other in their zealous activity end quote so we got we got an automated factory autofac going on here but himmel's an odd cat he He's sort of bought up. He, he gets the permission from Virgil to to take some of these amoebas home with them and experiment with them. And he doesn't really kill them. He wants to sort of keep them alive. And he actually asks this question, you know, should we use them? He says, well, I consider them alive, Mr. Ackerman. And just because they're inferior. He's talking to Jonas here. Jonas is with him. But I consider them alive, Mr. Ackerman. And just because they're inferior and capable of guiding a rocket ship in deep space, that doesn't mean they don't have rights to live out their meager lives. I release them and they wheel around for, I expect, six years or possibly longer. That's enough. That gives them what they're entitled to. So, yeah, that's chapter one. A lot of background information about Kathy and Eric's relationship, about the war that the Earth is bogged down into, about the company that he works for. Um, so a lot, a lot of information is passed on to us through, through a handful of conversations. So chapter two is mostly a long meeting with Eric and Virgil and Virgil's scions, his, his extended family, in a place called Washington, 1935, Wash 35. This is Virgil Ackerman's massive baby land that he's constructed, and he's having these meetings there. So who's all this mean? I think we have to know all these characters, but it's Virgil, uh, his doctor, Eric, and then Harvey, Jonas, Ralph, and Phyllis. These are all the, the children. And they're in a they start out the chapter in a ship going to Washington 35. And I don't know if it's in Washington. I don't think it is. I think this is all this is all set like in Tijuana or somewhere. Or the government, by the way, is in Cheyenne. So the, the UN government is in Cheyenne. Dick has some kind of fascination with Cheyenne. He he used it a lot in the Eye in the Sky, and I think there's some other novels where Cheyenne becomes the capital or a central 
um, city. I, I don't know why. Maybe he was there once and he liked it. Um, we learn that Virgil is, of course, very, very old. We learn how he stays alive. We also learn that he's essentially a, a serial womanizer, using his money and wealth and, and fame to get a different woman every night. And there's actually a conversation between him and his kids about how you know his heart maybe can't take all this, all these young lovers. And you know, for him, it doesn't matter because his heart will be instantly replaced by Eric. Eric will just give him a new heart, and as long as his brain doesn't give out, he's going to stay alive. One of the sons actually quotes Don Giovanni, and there's that famous moment in Don Giovanni where Laparello gives a list to one of Don Giovanni's ex-lovers of how many women he slept with and it's it's like one line is mil mil tre with like a thousand and three and that's how many he slept with in in italy right and that's just one small part of the overall list but the suggestion here is that virgil actually slept with more than that but after that a lot of this this chapter is about this nostalgia for the past and the, and the purpose of these baby lands so there's a this is on page 19 of the vintage edition. Quote, to everyone but Virgil Ackerman, the Washington DC of 1935 was a waste of time. Since only Virgil remembered the authentic city, the authentic time and place, the environment now so long passed away. In every detail, therefore, Wash 35 consisted of a painstakingly elaborate reconstruction of a specific limited universe of childhood, which Virgil had known, constantly refined and improved in matters of authenticity by his antique procurer, Kathy Sweetson, without really ever being in a genuine sense changed. It had cogulated, cleaved to a dead past, at least so far as the rest of the clan were concerned. But to Virgil, it of course sprouted life. Here it blossomed, he blossomed. He restored his flagging biochemical energy and it returned to the present, to the shaped current world, which he eminently understood and manipulated, but which he would not psychologically feel himself a native. And quote. So this is nostalgia, right? We, when, we, when we hear that song from the 80s, we get revived, we, we get excited, we, we imagine ourselves in that time, right? Now, as I'm recording this, the big news is the scandal about the Supreme Court nominee, Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, who, you know, really lived it up for him. The 80s were a party time, right? And of course, a lot of us remember the 80s as a party time, right? The party movies of the 80s were a big part of the culture of that time, right? Movies like... Uh, Avenger the Nerds or Porky's, all of these kind of movies all had sexual assault and sexual violence as part of the theme, right? So we, we, we have this nostalgia for this time period, but sometimes if we look too closely at this, you know, what we're nostalgic for is kind of gross, right? I think that's kind of the interesting, whatever, you know, they decide to do about Kavanaugh. I think the interesting thing is, is how we can look back at the 80s and see it as a, as a time of party and happiness and friends and cool music and, and all that but for other people it may be remembered very differently right it's you know it's the, the period when reagan destroyed the unions it was a period where maybe rape culture was permissible not that that was the first time it was permissible but for some people it was a, an era of trauma right but in this case, it's special because everyone is dead who couldn't remember Wash 1934. Only he can remember. So he's, it's almost a solipsistic kind of experience for him. And that's, I think, true with nostalgia in general, though, where we think back to a, single, a past that we remember and we connect it to maybe we, we remember the same music or the same movies or something, but in the same scenes. But ultimately, our, our memories are, are what we remember. And it's going to be kind of solipsistic. 
here. But the cool thing is it's, it kind of revives Virgil. It keeps helps keep him alive to do that. And then there's a little bit more Dick writes here. And his vast regressive baby line had caught on, became a fad. On lesser scales, other top industrialists and money boys, to speak in a brutal and frank way, war profiteers had made life-sized models of their childhood worlds too. Virgil now had ceased to be unique. None, of course, matched Virgil's in complexity and sheer authenticity. Fakes of antique items, not the actual surviving articles, had been strewn about in vulgar approximations of what had been authentic reality. So, um, end quote. Um, that's, that's interesting, because this is, of course, the theme in The Man on the High Castle, is the authentic artifact, the authentic antique. How can we know something is real and does it matter? Does it have that can something have that spirit of being of the past but not be authentic? And something else that may be from the past may not have that same feel of being authentic. We're then told though that this is not the only kind of tourist touristy thing that people do. Another one is much more horrible and that is POW camps for the Reeks. R-E-E-G-S. These are the these are basically like bug creatures. They have six legs and an exoskeleton. So they're, they're the size of humans, but they're, they're just real bug, bug creatures. They don't have vocal com communication. They, they have dance-like weavings in their sensory stalks. We learn later on that they seem to have psychic powers as well. They can talk to, to humans and starmen through mechanical translation boxes, but they're kept on display like a zoo. Uh, even though they're intelligent creatures, they're not, they're not monsters and animals. And I think that's a big theme in this novel is how stupid it was for Earth to ally with the Starmen, who are actually much more vile, but because they look sort of like us, they, they're similar, similar to us. And this is kind of a motif in a lot of science fiction, right? Like the humanoids in Star Trek, all these different species, they just look like humans that are just a little bit different. You know, they're mostly trustworthy, but if you see someone who's like a big monster or a big bug creature or the salt creature from the original series Star Trek, that, then it's, you can't trust it, right? Because it looks ugly. It must be a threat. We get more about the situation with this, with the war, which I've already sort of explained. Okay, so they're they, they end up going. They end up at the Wash Thirty Five, and they enjoy it. And they have, they talk about Kathy. They talk, you know, Eric. They talk about their relationship. They talk about all kinds of different things, and then they find out at the end of the chapter why Eric at least has been brought here, and that's when Gino Molinari walks in and uh, here's that it's it's hilarious actually um say right at the end of chapter two quote the guest the man they had come here to see reclining his face empty and slack lips bulging dark purple and irregular eyes fixed absolutely on nothing with gino molinari supreme elected leader of the terran unified planetary culture and the supreme commander of his armed forces in the war against the reeks his fly was unbuttoned um, and that's our first image of of the indispensable leader of, of the Terrans, that he's a bit sloppy, right? Lips bulging, dark, purple, and irregular. And sickness and grotesqueness and God, just a kind of overall odiousness is going to be a part of his character throughout. Now, that's a facade. His real intentions are hidden beneath the surface. His real moral center is, is hidden under the surface as well. And, you know, he kind of gets forced to do things because he's the supreme leader. And he has to make hard choices, but he's actually one of the more sympathetic characters in the story. But we, we just always see him in such a gross way. It's such an interesting image of, of political power as, 
as uh, almost always a lie. I mean, for Dick, political power is almost always a facade of some sort. You know, whether it's a, a good guy who comes off as evil, sometimes it's often it's uh, banality or folksiness that's really hiding something that that's that's quite horrible. This is a little bit interesting in that we actually have someone who seems to be a capable leader and seems to have Earth's best interest at heart. He realizes he makes mistakes. He, he wants to correct those mistakes and he sacrifices himself in horrible ways to get that done. And we'll talk about that when we get into probably next episode or the, or the one after how this actually plays out. Okay, so chapter three, we, we pick up from this meeting you know, so they come in, they see that Gino Molinari is already there, right? So they're, they're there to meet him. Virgil knew this, but Eric didn't, so Eric's surprised. Then we jump to another scene, and this is in, it's in Tijuana. We have Bruce Himmel, who is walking around the streets of Tijuana, and he runs into this guy named Plout. Full name, Christian Plout. So he runs into Christian Plout. He's kind of an important minor character in the novel. And he tells Himmel, this tech from Tijuana Fur and Dye Company, about a new drug that's that's come in. And this new drug is called JJ18180. JJ180. And this is going to be a drug that's going to be important throughout the whole book. It, it's it's kind of like choosy in the Three Stigmata Palmer Eltris. It's a new drug that provides new experiences. It seems to be extraterrestrial. It seems to have a foreign origin. People don't really know where it comes from, and it has really profound experiences for for people. This drug gets, I think, a more full explanation than Shuzi does. It's clear what it actually does. It, it has like more of a story behind it. It's a little bit more concrete. Shuzi is is almost like a almost like a symbol, almost like a metaphor for things. Um, but Himmel is told about this drug, and Plout says, "You know, you should go read it." And we now Himmel is a guy who's interested in drugs because he's interested in diverse experiences and challenging experiences that challenge reality, I guess. So here's part of Plout's uh, attempt to sell this drug to, to Himmel. Hallucinogenic, but more than that, we will fick fick. His eyes glazed over and he cheated into himself, grinning with beatitude. Himmel waited and at last Plout returned. Varies from person to person somehow involved with your sense of what Kant called the categories of perception. Get it? That would be your sense of time and space, Himmel said, having read Critique of Pure Reason, it being his style of prose as well as thought. In the small conap, he kept a paperback copy of it well marked. Right, it alters your perception of time in particular, so it ought to be, it ought to be called a temporogotic drug, correct? The first temporogotic drug, or rather, maltempogotic to be precise, unless you believe what you experience. But even though he's intrigued by it, Himmel tries to get away from what's essentially a, a creepy drug dealer. But eventually, Plout does talk him into into buying a drug, uh, the drug. And later on, he's going to be part of a group of people from Tijuana Fur and Dye, including Kathy Sweetscent, who are going to try out this drug along with a, a a famous mystic, a famous kind of popular mystic. So after this brief introduction to JJ One Eighty, this drug, where we return to the scene with Gino Molinari. And Virgil and, and, and Eric, and that, that's going to be the heart of the, the heart of the scene. And we learn what it is that the mole, Gino Molinari, wants with with Eric. But what we're told right away is about the reality of power, and that's what Eric thinks about right away. Is this is our leader? 
Quote, to Eric's surprise, he saw that in real life, the mole looked exactly as he had of late on TV. No greater, no sturdier, no more in command. It seemed impossible, but it was so. And yet he was in command. In every legal sense, he had retained his position to power, yielding to no one, at any rate, no one on Terra. Nor, Eric realized suddenly, did Molinari intend to step down, despite his obviously deteriorated phys physical or psychophysical condition. Somehow that was clear, made so by the man's utter slack stance, his willingness to appear this natural way to a collection of rather potent personages. The mole remained as he was, with no poise, no posture of the militant heroic. Either he was too far gone to care, or Eric thought, or there was too much of a genuine importance at stake for him to waste his waning strength in merely impressing people, and especially those on his own planet. The mole had passed beyond that. Yet he does appear very gross. He... He needs to shave. He's stuttled. He's got stains on his face and in his clothes. There's a sooty, quote, sooty black, blackness in him. His shoelaces were undone. I mean, it's really, really a vulgar looking, looking person. And anyways, what does the mole eventually say? Well, Virgil introduces Eric to him and Molinari essentially says that, or Virgil essentially gives Eric to Molinari and says, he is now yours. And so Eric's going to take a job in, in the military. And that, that's pretty much where chapter, chapter three uh, ends up. It's a pretty short chapter, just two, two quick scenes. Okay, chapter four. Yeah, chapter four. Um, we'll look at one more in this, this episode. So we, we open up with this party where we have Bruce Himmel. Uh, Chris, it's all a Chris Plout's con act, that drug dealer. Um, Bruce Himmel's there. Kathy's there. There's some other people from Tijuana. Um, Fur and die, which is something that Kathy notices. The other guy there is Marm Hastings. Marm Hastings is a kind of a famous writer on mystical experiences, particularly oriental mysticism. And so he's, he's kind of your typical California hippie writer who's interested in Buddhism and Taoism and, and writes books about that, a bit of a guru type. And he has, he makes it a point to try all the new drugs because he wants to have these different experiences, right? And that was a popular thing among the kind of hippy-dippy spiritualists of, of the 1960s that Dick is certainly thinking about. He's going to write a whole book about these guys. It was his last book, actually, that he that was published before his death. The Transmigration of Timothy Archer is, is sort of all about one of these guys. Um, so they now there's we get a little bit of nice detail here about Kathy. Again, we're constantly reminded that Kathy is very, very hot. And this is one reason that Eric really can't fully get rid of her. But uh, we got some interesting fashion bits that Dick just has to throw in because he always does, especially things with the breasts and nipples. Uh, in this case, Kathy is naked from the waist up, but her nipples have treated, been treated with a coating of living matter, sentient, a Martian life form, so that each possessed a consciousness. Hence, each nipple responded in an alert fashion to everything going on. That's wild. I wonder when, when Dick thought that up. Um, they debate, they talk about where it came from. And they talk a little bit about the, the Sweet Sense relationship, Eric and Kathy. And Kathy complains about Eric um, behind his back, of course. But they ask about where it comes from, and no one really knows. They, they think Germany, maybe? Like, 
but uh, Marm Hastings says, no, it can't be Germany because I know people in the pharmaceutical industry there. Maybe it's from off-world. Maybe it's from Ganymede or from Mars or something. It seems to be an off-world drug, and, and that's, that's the first theory about the origin of JJ-180 that we're given. Then they take the drug. They, they take it, and they have an experience. They say it's worth it, but it, there's not too much detail about... They don't kind of enter like they did into the three-stick mod of Palmer Outdoors. They don't enter in this alternate reality for a few chapters where they're exploring everything. That, that's going to come later in the story where the drug gets used. It's just as like a regular drug experience. Later on, Kathy will actually say that it really does not that special. <laughs> you know, she's had better drugs than that, and she doesn't know what the big deal with it is. But they just do it. But you know, this idea of taking drugs collectively and having a common experience is something we've seen before in the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Um, so then we flip back to Gino Molinari, and he basically says that what I need Eric for is to help keep me alive. And we learn that Gino Molinari is a hypochondriac. He has many, many different diseases, cancer and other problems, and he needs someone to basically keep him alive. And there's all, this is a fascinating section to read, but there's, you know, like he talks about how he doesn't even eat, but other times we're told that Molinari is a glutton. So it's, it's hard to know what to believe here. Eric Sweetsen's initial response to hearing this about him is that a lot of this must be psychosomatic. A lot of it's just in his mind. And the Mol Molinari refuses to accept that. And he's got this pain in the stomach that is like this new symptom and he wants it addressed. And Eric's like, if you have a stomach problems, just get a new stomach. I can give you a new stomach in five minutes. It's, it's a really simple operation. But he says, no, I don't want to. He'd rather die than get a new stomach. And the th one theory that Molinari gives up is that maybe they are psychosomatic. He, he, he kind of denies that earlier, but within a page, he goes back to this idea that it might be all in his head. Quote, sure, Molinari said, even though I'm the UN Secretary General, hasn't it occurred to you that I want to die? That these pains, this developing physical or psychosomatic illness is a way out for me? I don't want to go on. Maybe who knows? What difference does it make to anyone? But the hell with it. Virgil, for Christ's sake, let's pour and get this party started. Did you know this was a party? I bet this old man told you it was some secret conference for solving Terran's military, political, and economic problems. End quote. So there's a kind of a, 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 a kind of a schizophrenic nature to Molinari, where he's switching through things. Like a, like a good leader, I suppose, has to do this, has to manage many different things in his head and multitask and, and all that. But it's, it's a really bizarre meeting. They talk a little bit more about medicine. Eric meets the mole's other doctor, um, Thomas Johansson will be a minor character in the rest of the story. Um, so Eric's going to be hired on essentially as Molinari's doctor and, and or drafted the military technically. But before this deal is finally worked out, the mole shakes Eric's hand. And when he does this, they have a psychic experience about, about his wife, about Kathy. And it seems... The mole has some kind of, he has this telepathic reading. He's got this telepathic ability, right? And we, we see other characters who, are, who have precognition, right? In fact, later on, we learn Molinari's very, very young girlfriend. I think she's like 17 or 18. She's a precog herself. So there's, there's a little bit of a theme of, of posthumanism here, um, but it's, it's not the central cornerstone of, of the novel. But here's a little plot device in which, you know, Molinari realizes that there's something up with this 
woman Kathy and he shakes his hand to kind of understand what Eric is going through. And the, the fact that the Molinari is a very empathetic or he's a character with a lot of empathy, right? He, he carries on the burden of the war effort and, and he goes through a lot of suffering in the, in the sustaining of this war effort. And he's got this great love for the human race and he's got a lot of his own personal sufferings. His wife died. And so he is kind of trying to help Eric, it seems. And the scene that he thinks up is these is a scene in which one of Eric's videotapes, he's collecting these these like mid 20th century TV shows and comedies and movies and stuff. And he's saving all these tapes. And he's also kind of a nostalgia collector, just like Virgil is. He's not immune from this deep nostalgia for the past. But for him, it's collecting these videotapes. And Kathy comes back kind of angry and destructive. Like I said, I think she has strong tendencies, borderline tendencies. I, I don't know if Dick ever used that or if he knew about that person, that typical, that, that personality, that specific personality disorder, but he doesn't really mention it. But she seems to come off as very, bi um, not bipolar, uh, borderline. So she actually breaks one of his tapes, but doesn't tell him which one she broke. Like, and this really bothers him because a lot of these are not replaceable. They're one of a kind. And she did it just, she did the one thing that would, she would know would anger him and frustrate him. And so she acted out in this very violent way into the relationship. And this is the scene that apparently is on Eric's mind when he shakes hands with Molinari when he thinks about Kathy. And then after this scene, she, she also accuses him in bed, essentially, of of not being a real man because he doesn't make enough money, pushing him to get a better job. This stuff, I, I, I really believe Dick was pulling from, from real life. His, the women he was in his life were nagging him to get a better job or to make more money or have a more stable income or to write books that would be more popular, whatever, to, to, to make more money. Because you see it so often here where a wife is telling a male character that his job stinks and he needs to make more money. We saw it in Clans of the Elfine Moon as well. And so she tears at him by destroying one of these videotapes. And this really hurts Eric. And after, they, they, after the mole shares this experience with him, this memory, they talk about it. And the mole actually takes on the role here as a pretty sympathetic psychotherapist trying to actually help Eric out. He says, and the hatred for her became hatred for yourself because you couldn't stand being afraid of the one small woman, but a very powerful person. Notice I said person, not woman. Those low blows, Eric said, like her erasing my tape. The low blow, the mole interrupted, was not her erasing the tape. It was her refusing to tell you which one she had erased and her making it so clear that she enjoyed the situation. If she had been sorry, but a woman, a person like that, they're never sorry, never. And you can't leave her. We're fused, Eric said. The damage is done. The mutually inflicted pain delivered at night without the, po delivered at night without the possibility of anyone inter intervening, overhearing, or coming to help. So that's, geez, that's a really bleak view of relationships. It's kind of a shared suffering and hatred that no one really can, can help you escape. Um, but after this shared bonding between Molinari and Eric, uh, they basically come to the agreement that Eric will go on to, to Molinari's staff as his personal doctor. He can still keep his salary with Virgil Ackerman and maybe still, you know, give Ackerman an, a new heart after he sleeps with some young women and his heart goes out again. 
But his main job is going to be with the mole for the foreseeable future, and his job will be keeping Molinari alive and keeping him and dealing with his various numerous ailments. He's going to be drafted in the military because that's, I guess, what it takes. Service in the government is all military service, I suppose, during the in, in the wartime economy. So that's it. That's the first quarter of now wait for last year, maybe a little bit less than a quarter, but the first the first four chapters. Uh, in the next episode, I'll look at chapters five, six, and seven, which will take us to the halfway point of the book. Those sections deal mostly with the aftermath of Kathy taking this, this drug, JJ180, and we learn more about the Starmen and their goal, and we learn more about Molinari. So there's um, a lot more development of, of, of the context and the situation we're really in in the, in the second half or, the, or in the second quarter of the book. So... Um, yeah, if you've read uh, Now Wait for Last Year, let me know what you thought of it. Uh, please leave your, your comments below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, I'd love to hear from you. So that's, I guess that's it. Uh, I'll see you next time with part two of my review of Now Wait for Last Year. And contentment forever If you